Hey, I'm Amory Robertson. I'm your host for Read Write Geek, a podcast for writers, readers, and makers of all kinds. Welcome aboard. Okay, just want to take a minute here to say I'm so excited. This is the next to the last episode before the finale of Nothing Larger Than These Stars. And that means that next week we'll be dropping episode 15, the very last installment. And I'm also going to be hosting a live stream Q&A here on Podbean. I will send more details about that later in the week. They're having a little bit of trouble with the platform, so I might wind up having to move it over to Facebook. But if you have a question about anything, about my writing process, about writing this novel, about the characters in the novel, about podcasting, or about writing generally, or any other question you might think of. If you've got a question, please send it to me. Shoot me an email at hello at emarierobertson.com, and I'll add it to the list of things that I answer on my live stream. I'm looking forward to hearing from you, and I hope you are enjoying Nothing Larger Than These Stars. Thanks! Episode 14 The next few days are somber and strained in our pod. I question Holly a little more about how she found the sphere and even ask her to think back to the day Carloa collapsed, but she has no new insight to offer. I wander into the room Carloa was first assigned when she arrived, which later became Arden and Parker's room and now belongs to Hen and Parker. But, of course, there are no clues to be found there. Carloa wasn't on Iona long enough to put any personal belongings into her new room, or maybe had known she wasn't going to be around to use them anyway. Fallon spends most of her time at the Warren, trying to untangle whatever mysteries the materials we took from Carloa's backpack might hold, although I occasionally come across her screaming verbal abuse into her holo at someone about her impending retrieval. I decide it's best to inform Arden of what we found that night before bed. I'm saddened when his first conclusion is the same as Fallon's. Are you protecting Graham because you had a personal relationship, he asks after my initial objection to his theory. I'm not protecting him, and we didn't have a personal relationship, whatever you mean by that, I say, with more than a hint of irritation in my voice. He's a friend. He's trying to help. And even you know that. You like Graham. I do like him, but I can't discount any possibility. You don't know what he was like out in the black. I don't know what you were like out in the black, I say, eyeing him levelly. But I'm sure you both had your reasons. You'll notice I'm not telling Graham about everything we found in Carloa's backpack, but the key to sorting this out is finding a way to revive Carloa. She's the one who can settle it for once and for all. His mouth draws into a tight line and he runs one hand through his thick blonde hair. You're right about that, he admits. But don't be surprised if Graham figures into this somehow in the end. His family is quite entrepreneurial, let's say. It would be like them to get wind of an opportunity like Iona's sand and want to move to get a foot in the door and exploit it as rapidly as possible. So you're saying it might come down to a battle between Graham's family empire and the company, I say, laughing a little. The idea that any private homeworld citizen would go up against the company's might seems ludicrous to me until I remember that Arden and I attempted just that. You really don't trust him, do you? I wish it was that simple, Arden says. The company itself has multiple factions, all very focused on this little planet. I'm continuing to receive intel from my people from out in the field, and it's an extremely tumultuous time. What we're living through now may just be the tip of the dune. Is the company breaking apart? I ask in shock. I never imagined, after more than a hundred years of dominance in this system, that the company might be in danger of dissolution. 
Changing is a better word, says Arden, and it could lead to dramatic improvements. Many of us on the inside are working toward that, but it could also change for the worse. It's not the most settling thought to have floating in your mind when you're trying to drift off to sleep, but my unsettled night turns out to be nothing compared to the next morning. As is his habit, Arden is up before the rising chimes, but he's far from alone this morning. There's a commotion in the common room that almost shakes the walls of our pod, and everyone who is not already up soon gathers, some still in pajamas and robes, to see what the fuss is about. It turns out to be directly related to Fallon March. I peer around the edge of our hallway's entrance into the common room just in time to see a holo tablet go flying across the room, followed by a stream of expletives. Sure enough, Fallon stands on the other side of the room, her hands clenched and her face a mask of rage. She's still shrieking, but she's abandoned words and is resorting to banshee-like sounds. I decide I have to be the brave one. I step into the room. Fallon, what is it? I say quietly. Her face is flushed and her eyes are red. Three days, she barks out, half shouting, half sobbing. The son of a bitches will be here to get me in three days. The recall? I ask, and she nods, her fist still tightly clenched at her sides. I thought you were going to fight it. I did, she says miserably. I lost. Those of us who know what Fallon has been doing in her long hours at the storage warren, Mabry, Winda, Arden, and I, look from one to another. We know what she's thinking. Three days is not going to be enough time. Let me see if I can help, says Arden, and Fallon shoots him a look that is by turns sad, appreciative, and irritated. I know, I know, he responds, but I might be able to pull enough strings to buy you some more time. What about Graham, I ask, and Arden blanches. His family's powerful. If they're interested, this could be something they might want to see happen as well, I whisper. Let's use every potential asset now. This might be our last chance. <sighs> You're right, Arden says, sighing. I'll talk to him, but I don't want to tell him everything. Good, I say. Figure out what to say to see if there's anything he can do. I turn back toward Fallon. In the meantime, we're going to proceed to get this done in the time we have, I say. Tell me anything you need to help you move it along. I'll get it for you. Fallon finally takes a deep breath and unclenches her fists. I don't know that any of this will work, but you're right. We need to try, she says. And thank you. And sorry to whoever's holo tablet that was. She drops into her place at our long table, looking uncharacteristically hopeless. She doesn't even protest when Holly, after placing a fresh cup of coffee in front of her, gives her an impromptu hug. I make her eat something for breakfast and grab something quick for myself. Arden disappears back into our room to tap some of his contacts, and Mabry, Winda, and Holly make it clear they plan to accompany us to the storage warren. I remember an old adage about how a ship with too many engines can't fly in a straight line. Mabry's finally convinced to go back to her shop, while Holly accepts an assignment to scour the area where she found the sphere for additional clues. Winda can't be dissuaded, however, so the three of us wind up tramping across the lot toward the storage warrens. How far have you progressed? Winda asks Fallon. Not very far at all, Fallon says, and for a brief moment I detect disappointment in the set of her features. I'm trying to break down the components of the serum and how they're supposed to work, but there's something strange about it. It's not consistent from vial to vial. Different viscosities, different reactive properties. I don't understand the point of the variations or why there would be so many of them. Different immunity serums for different forms of blue, I propose, but Fallon shakes her head. Not likely, she says. Immunity only has to prevent the initial action from kicking off. It doesn't make sense. We credential into the warren. Mabry hails me and says, three into storage warren on your badge, and I confirm. Number four is next, I say, and Mabry responds, I'll be looking for it. The change in number four from the day I helped Fallon start her setup is dramatic. 
From a single metal table, some crates, and an auto flat full of what looked initially like random parts, a full-blown chemical analysis lab has emerged. Mabry has managed to scavenge all top-of-the-line analyzers and processors. There's surely nothing Fallon needs beyond simply putting together the pieces of this puzzle. We spend several hours analyzing vials of serum, comparing properties, and researching components. Fallon seems buoyed by having permission to boss Winda and me around, so I don't object. But test after test ends with Fallon frowning at her results, and tube after tube, slide after slide, go into the no-dice pile off to the side of one of the tables. Is there a different way to go about what you're doing, I ask her? Can you start with what you've already developed instead of trying to understand the serums first? Fallon runs one hand through her white blonde hair as she considers what I've said. I have an idea about that, she says, but it's dangerous. If I pursue this, you two are going to have to leave. I'll be using Live Blue, and it's too risky. Do you think there's a possibility that this process will work? I ask. Fallon's lips pull into a thin line. It might, she says eventually. I think I'll come closer with it than I will with this serum, because I don't know what I'm working with here. If I'm using Live Blue, I might be able to guess the components of the serum based on the way they interact. Then do it, and we'll get out of here, I say, but first we're bringing you a huge tub of sand. After the sand is delivered as promised, Wenda and I leave Fallon to her work and walk out into the pale Iona sunlight. Once back at the pod, I head into my room and hail Arden. Any progress? I ask. I'm not sure, he says. I've called in some favors on the tactical side to try to make things happen in Fallon's favor, but it's tense in the department already. Weapons Dev is making a push to take over tactical altogether, and if that happens, all the other sections will be routed, including espionage. So I'm probably going to be out of a job soon. But since I'm apparently now part of a band of anarchistic space punks causing havoc on Iona, I'm probably out of that job already. Then thank the stars you have three jobs, I say, and I hear him chuckle softly despite himself. What about Graham? Have you spoken to him? I tried to casually chat him up about the family business and what's going on there, but as usual, I can't read him when it comes to that, Arden replies. He's incredibly circumspect about his relations back home. He did seem concerned about Fallon getting pulled in front of the board, though, so I hope if there's something he can do, he'll do it. Tell him we're counting on him, I say. We need all the help we can get. Having been tossed out of Fallon's experiments and with nothing on the work docket for me, I decide to pay a visit to my private project space. My last haul of cast-offs was so rich that it's virtually finishing itself, and I've even been able to make a few upgrades to the original plan. I need to add just a few touches, and my impossible project will be complete. I make my way past the landing pads and up across the bluff to the main entry. When I step inside, I'm almost breathless with excitement. If I can lose myself in this for a few hours, I'll be done. I can't help but smile as I wipe my palms across my tan cargo pants and get to work. I might have one success today, even if I can't tell anyone about it just yet. It's almost dinner time when I finish up and leave my project space for the pod. Halfway home, I get a hail from Mabry. She's so wound up she can barely speak. I got a ping from the mystery crate and I'm looking at the data now, she says. Something's changed. I thought maybe it was an aberration from all the to-do in number eight the other night, but there's no way it could have affected it like this. What do you mean? I ask. Has someone tried to open it? No, no. Something is happening inside the crate, she says, her exuberance barely contained. The environmental mix has changed. The CO2 levels are creeping up. It's so slow, it's almost undetectable, but it's consistent. I'm still not following. CO2 levels, as in high enough to be dangerous, I ask? Is it likely to explode? It's not that, Mabry says, her voice crackling with excitement. It's almost as if something in there is breathing. But the oxygen levels are so low that it can't support anything alive for very long. I'm bringing the scanner over. We should think about opening it as soon as we can. This is something we all need to be part of. 
I hail Fanny, Graham, Arden, Matcha, and Wenda to let them know what's happening. Matcha in particular is interested in being present in case there are any more medical disasters. I step into the warren and stop first by number four. Fallon, I call, and she opens the door. Her face is ringed in sweat, but she's smiling. Perfect timing, she says. I think I'm getting somewhere, but I'm going to need some of that blue from the spheres in number eight. Well, that's where we're headed, I tell her. Come on, let's get you what you need. In number eight, Fallon selects a sphere from the collection and cradles it against her chest. I don't want to interrupt you, but if you get to a stopping point, we're about to open that up, I say, gesturing toward the crate. She looks at it closely now, and her eyebrows arch up in surprise. Where did this come from? she asks. Not sure, I respond. Send her as a generic company address. Great flaming stars! That's the second crate, she says. So that's where it went. Why do you have it? I don't know what you're talking about, but I have it because it was addressed to me by name. Fallon looks shocked. That crate that exploded. Remember I told you it came through a pass link from Bartizel? There were two crates on the export statement. This has to be the second crate. But addressed to you? Why would it be addressed to you? Her face reflects her confusion. Your guess is as good as mine, I say. I have no idea who sent it or why, or what it contains. We've been monitoring it, hoping it's not going to explode on its own. But Mabry just pinged me and let me know it appears something inside is producing carbon dioxide. She's on the way with the scanner. Everyone's on the way, in fact. CO2? Like... (sighs) Fallon exhales dramatically. Yep, Mabry's words were, It's breathing. She smirks as she begins inspecting the crate. Well, it does have an enviro attached to it, she says, but the environmental mix isn't going to support any kind of life very well. Otherwise, it's very similar to the other one. She taps its lid with one long red fingernail. There could be extremely useful material in here. If its contents are similar to the one that exploded, that could be very helpful indeed, she says. And we could be very dead indeed if opening it goes the same way, I point out. Fallon rolls her eyes in exasperation. Scan it. Verify that it's not an explosive. That's the easy part. Then get it open, she snaps. I only have two and a half days left. If there's something in there that I can use, I definitely want it now. Let me know what happens. She stalks away to her space with her sphere of blue. I'm not sure whether to be happy or disappointed that she appears to be her old self again. It takes about ten minutes for everyone to assemble in number eight. Mabry is last to arrive with security's most powerful scanner and a collection of other equipment on a hover flat. She's reviewed the data extensively, but sets her holo up on the flat for anyone else who wants to take a look. I think we're a go on it, she says confidently. I'm finding nothing that suggests it has any explosive triggers, mechanisms, or contents. We all look at each other tensely. Go ahead with the scan, I say. Within minutes, she's set up and is ready to run the crate through an initial survey. Anything you know of ever explode from being scanned? I ask Arden as he presses in behind me to watch. Um, just a few things, he says. He's not smiling as he says it. We both instinctively take a large step back from the crate and scanner. It's probably not a bad idea for everyone to go out into the hallway until this process completes, Matcha calls, ever the voice of reason. Yeah, go ahead. I'll come out as soon as the scan starts, Mabry says, her enthusiasm momentarily tempered by worry and perhaps the memory of the day that Polly was hurt. We dutifully herd into the hallway and wait for Mabry to join us. We stand quietly while she tracks the scanner's progress on her holo. The device isn't only creating a visual reading of what's in the crate, it's also sampling the internal atmosphere for telltale chemical signatures that could indicate a bomb or explosive materials. It only takes a couple of minutes, and the scan completes without incident. We file back into the room, and Mabry pulls up the data on her holo. The visual flickers for a few moments, then finally resolves. 
Floating in the air in front of us is a three-dimensional representation of the container's contents. Everyone lets out a gasp of astonishment. Matcha is the first to speak. That appears to be a person, she says, blinking. The scanner has detected no explosive components or caustic agents, so I gingerly approach the crate and use my credentials to begin the opening sequence. After tapping in the right codes, the lid slowly slides back without issue. We all cluster around the crate to have a look. Inside is a man, knees drawn up toward his chest and hands placed comfortably under his head. He looks to be about 50, medium height and build, with shoulder-length black hair shot through with silver. He's wearing the standard-issue clothing of Bardizel, along with a woven leather bracelet on one wrist. He's also a now-familiar shade of turquoise. Chapter 26 Macha calls for a hover gurney to be dispatched immediately. Does anybody know him? I ask. Graham, is he one of yours or just dressed like one of yours? Graham shakes his head. I may have seen him at some point, but I don't recognize him, he says. If he's from Bartizel, I don't think we ever met. Obviously, he's been dosed, but I don't recall seeing him at the compound either. Arden? Arden leans over the crate and studies the man's face. He's not IF, he says. I have no idea who he is. It's too bad. He looks friendly, Fanny says, a sad tinge in her voice. I know she's thinking of Polly, but she has a point. Even in stasis, his face is relaxed and pleasant as if he's asleep and having the most wonderful dream. When the gurney arrives, we help the technicians lift him out of the crate and position him securely. We then search for any hint of his identity. His pockets yield no papers and no credentials. There isn't even a name on his jacket. The crate is similarly devoid of clues and holds nothing more. His identity is a complete mystery. And you don't know him? Arden asks me. I shake my head no. I know I've never seen him before. What would make someone send him to you? I honestly don't know, and all I can muster is another shake of my head. Maybe more psychological warfare? Wenda suggests, but I discount that theory. This crate arrived early on. We didn't know what blue was. We'd never seen it. We weren't in any kind of conflict, and the Bartizellian transferees had only been here for a day or so, I said. If we'd opened it then, it would have been a mystery, but it wouldn't have meant anything to us. Maybe it was about the Bartizellian transferees, Wenda says. At least some of them knew about Blue and what happened in the compound. Maybe it was sent to intimidate them, or to make us seem in league with the company. Well, then why not send him to Graham, then, I ask. What would be the point of sending him to me? Maybe a scare tactic, Arden proposes, or to encourage whoever was in the warehouse to open that crate and create the explosion that set this all off to begin with? We're all lost in our thoughts of rationale and conspiracy. After Matcha departs for clinical with the mystery man, we close up the storage units and leave the Warren as a group. Even Fallon March comes along. Despite her protestations, we convince her that she at least needs to eat. As Mabry and the others chatter but with speculation about who the mystery man could possibly be, Fallon casts me a knowing glance. I know who she thinks it is, the man whose identity Carrot Ardival usurped. But why would Ardival take the risk of sending that person to Iona? And how would he settle on me as the recipient? I'm shaken out of my contemplation by the appearance of Graham at my side. I understand Fallon has a problem, he says, smiling conspiratorially. If what I've heard is right, we all do, I respond. Congratulations on being promoted to the status of anarchist, although that's probably not great for any career advancement you might have been contemplating. I've been labeled worse. In fact, I've been labeled worse recently. He looks over my head at Arden, who's walking on my left. Arden doesn't acknowledge the remark, but his eyes narrow and his expression becomes steely. At any rate, Graham continues, I wanted to make sure you knew where my loyalties lie. 
I'll do whatever I can to preserve this planet and to bring Polly and Carloa back. It may not be much, but I'm happy to contribute. You don't even have to ask. And there's no subtext to this. It's simply what I need to do. I look up into his face. His expression is soft and caring, and for a moment I see that lovely man who used to take me out walking under the stars and who kissed me on a pile of pillows in the star parlor. I feel a pang of guilt, regret, I'm not sure which. It must show on my face because the same emotions briefly parade across his features before he takes my hand, kisses the back of it, then trots away to engage Fallon in an animated conversation. Before long, the two of them are diverging from the group, and as the rest of us enter the pod courtyard, I see them circle around the building and continue walking, heading for the northern ridge. Dinner comes and goes without sight of them again. Fanny departs for her pod after the evening meal, and Mabry brings us all up to speed on the latest official company communiques, highlighting the, quote, lawless behavior, unquote, of the reckless individuals that, quote, threaten the stability and safety of the population of Iona. I'm not included, she says to me, pouting. You got listed by name. I'm sure it's just an oversight, I say. You're not the only one they missed. They left out Fanny and Winda, and I have it on good authority that they're reckless individuals, too. Quiet, Winda says, sitting down next to Mabry and tucking an arm through hers. We're flying under the radar. We all laugh a little, but it sounds a bit forced. We know that there may be some serious consequences ahead that we might not even be able to imagine. The company can be your very best friend, but if it finds it more expedient, it can also be your worst nightmare. The next morning, the rising chimes have barely quit ringing before I hear Fallon's voice in the common room shouting, Where are they? Are they up yet? and not waiting for Hen's answer before running down the hallway and barging into our room. Hey, objects Arden, trying to cover his nakedness with whatever items first come to hand, which unfortunately turn out to be a washcloth and one of my fuzzy pink night socks. Fallon looks him up and down briefly before rolling her eyes dismissively and focusing on me. Get dressed as fast as you can and come to the Warren, she says. I think I've got something. She's almost out the door again when she pops her head back in and says to Arden, You can come too, but don't wear that. Pink's not your color, and disappears. Was that a joke? I ask, astonished. Did Fallon March just make a joke? Maybe she got laid last night, Arden mutters, dropping the sock on the floor and casting around for some actual clothing. I don't think they ever came back to the pod. I don't know what they were doing up on the ridge, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't that, I say. Although some people might be into sand and sharp rocks and plants bristling with spikes. From the common room, I hear Fallon shout impatiently, Hurry up, damn it! Ah, no, my mistake. She clearly didn't get laid, Arden growls. He's managed to get his pants on, but is still rubbing sleep out of his eyes with both fists. I toss him a shirt from our closet and pull one on myself. We're in the common room inside of three minutes, but Fallon is pacing the floor as if we'd kept her waiting for hours. Let's go, she barks as soon as she sees us. I've got you a scooter. She runs out and jumps onto one of two scooters poised beside the pod's main entry and is away before we can mount up and follow. We arrive at the Warren and enter number four to find a demonstration set up. A small piece of unidentifiable blue tissue lies in a dish on one of her workstations. She positions us where we have a clear view but aren't standing too close, then uncorks one of a series of small vials lying next to the dish. She takes two drops of a swirling opalescent liquid from the vial with a dropper and gently applies them directly to the tissue. A small puff of steam rises and gradually the tissue begins to change color. After a minute or so, it's pink and translucent again. She pokes it with the curved end of her dissection probe. It's soft and flexible, no longer the quality of stone. She looks up at Arden and me, an expectant look on her face. Well, she asks, what do you think? It looks like it works as far as you've gone, Arden says, but what about something with more complex systems? Keep watching, she says. I'm not done yet. 
She turns to a series of containers behind her and after a few seconds of rummaging, selects one and places it on the table. When she opens it, we see it contains a small sand lizard, a type that is quite common on Iona. The difference is that this lizard's grayish-brown coloration has changed to a shining turquoise blue. You dosed a lizard? I ask. Scientific necessity, she says. He was a pain in the ass to catch, too. But let me show you what we've got here. She pulls the cork from another vial. This time, she pours the liquid over the lizard. Again, there's a puff of steam, and his coloration begins to transform. Although he's soon grayish-brown again and moving his head from side to side, something's wrong. He doesn't appear able to get enough equilibrium to stand or walk and lies on his belly in the tray, panting. His eyes begin to flutter and his breathing becomes increasingly irregular. I'm preparing myself for his inevitable demise when Fallon intervenes, picking up the lizard in one gloved hand and using the other to squirt several drops of the liquid from a third vial into his mouth and nostrils. At first, he responds as if he's drowning, shaking his head frantically. His eyes roll back for a second and he stops moving. But an instant later, his eyes snap into focus and he leaps from her hand onto the lab table, scurrying across it and down one leg to run off into the pile of containers to hide. Oh, that's fantastic, I cry. Arden is more skeptical. Okay, he says. Lizard revived. Apparently. But how long does it last? And again, simple systems. I'm getting to that, Commander Pink Sock. Just hold on, Fallon says. I can almost feel Arden blushing next to me, and I have to hide a smile behind my hand. I can answer your questions, but first, one more demo. This time, the container she extracts from the pile contains a mouse. It's white for a dramatic contrast with the turquoise blue of its skin. Where did you get a... Arden starts to ask, but is stopped by the death glare Fallon fixes on him. Never mind, proceed, he says, waving his hand in the air as if to wave away as unimportant the question he was about to ask. This time, Fallon uncorks three vials. First, she pulls some of the liquid into a hypodermic needle and carefully injects it into a vein in the distal part of the mouse's tail. Almost immediately, the vein blanches, then slowly becomes slender pinkish thread, weaving its way into the still blue body of the mouse. After a minute or so, the mouse begins to work its mouth and blink, and the blue color in its skin starts to fade. It's still largely immobile, however. The transition is not nearly as dramatic as it was for the tissue, nor as complete as with the lizard, but Fallon is not done yet. She draws up a syringe of the shining fluid and carefully squeezes it into the mouse's open mouth and places another drop into its nostrils. Finally, as the mouse begins to shake its head and make soft squeaks, she pours even more liquid into its mouth. The mouse swallows, and within ten minutes, it's fully pink-skinned, squeaking and nibbling on the edge of the plastic container. Fallon steps back from the table, one gloved hand on her hip, a smug and delighted expression on her face. Well, she says, looking from me to Arden, and before you talk to me like I'm an idiot, I've done the calculations based on size and weight. There are going to be variables we may not be able to account for, but it will work on people. I'm sure of it. I have a lot of questions. I'm sure Arden does too, but the moment deserves recognition that goes beyond the things we want to know. As I offer Fallon my most appreciative smile, Arden simply reaches across the lab table and earnestly shakes her hand. Fallon beams. Do you have what you need to make enough of this, I ask? She nods. I pinned down these tests and got almost everything set overnight, she says. I'll be ready to shift over to clinical in a couple of hours. I'll have Matcha hail you when it's time. Arden and I forego the scooter to walk back to our pod. I'm carrying the container holding the little white mouse, which Fallon pressed into my hands as we left, saying, please give him to Holly as a present from me. I'm sorry I'm too busy to do it myself. The mouse seems fully recovered and quite energetic, squeaking and skittering around in the small box as if nothing was ever amiss. I hope it's as successful on our people, I say with longing. I know that it might not be, though. 
Fallon was pretty clear about the risks, Arden says. Before we left, she explained in detail the myriad things that could go wrong, although she tried to account for most of them in her formulation. Multiple computer models run in multiple different scenarios yielded overall positive results, but sometimes ended in failure. And there are no other options for testing, and we are almost officially out of time. If we want to revive our friends, it has to happen now. No one else on Iona has the knowledge to direct the administration of these antidotes or has any idea what to do if something goes wrong. And we're all painfully aware that Fallon could be pulled off the planet forever as early as tomorrow. Holly is beyond delighted with her gift and sets about creating a mouse palace in her room while Hen digs through the pantry for mouse-appropriate snacks and beverages. That's going to be the most spoiled mouse on any planet, Arden observes. For my money, the mouse has earned all the privileges he's about to receive. He's lucky, I say. Maybe we will be too. It's early afternoon by the time I get the hail from Matcha. She's very specific about how she wants the work to unfold. This is still a highly experimental procedure that may yield unpredictable results, she tells me in a firm, non-negotiable tone. It's a risky experiment and a clinical learning opportunity, not a viewing party. Fanny will be here for Polly, and Graham will be here for Carloa. I think you're the appropriate choice to handle our mystery man, should he revive. This also means you accept the responsibility, as they will, for making possibly life-and-death decisions for him should anything go amiss during the process. Anyone else is welcome to wait downstairs, and we'll keep them informed. Any objections? Arden predictably wants a front-row seat, but Macha won't hear of it. Eventually, he grudgingly agrees to her conditions, although he presses for, and is finally granted, permission to stand in the hallway outside the suite as sort of a de facto security guard. When we walk into the lobby of clinical, there are more than three dozen people assembled. There are former Bartizellians like Quimby, Holly, and Hen, along with other friends and podmates of Polly's. Tomas has escorted a visibly shaken Fanny into the building and is trying to get her to drink some water. Winda and Mabry stand anxiously next to the glass-walled garden, their hands clutched tightly together. Winda mouths the words, good luck, to me, as Arden and I ascend the stairs. Polly, Carloa, and our mystery man have all been moved into a single large surgical suite. Hovering drones track their every bodily function and vital sign, and holo readouts float above each prone figure. Graham has arrived ahead of us and is standing near the head of Carloa's bed. His eyes are red-rimmed with exhaustion, but when he looks up and sees me in the doorway, he smiles. He acknowledges Arden with a nod as well, and a glimmer of respect and friendship passes between the two men. I kiss Arden on the cheek and step through the door, leaving him in the hallway. I then move to my post behind the head of our mystery man. Fanny is the last to arrive, walking up the stairs alone, her face pale and her hands trembling. As she looks at Polly, tears glisten in her eyes. Hopeful. Terrified. Good, says Macha. We're all here. We can begin when you're ready, Fallon. Fallon steps forward then, dressed in standard-issue clinical green. Her lurid red nails are hidden by gloves, and she's pulled her hair back and tucked it underneath the surgical headband. Macha stands behind her with four med techs. More await instruction at the back of the room. One holds a tray of human-sized syringes, needles, and bottles, all preloaded with the serum that we saw her use this morning. This is a multi-step process, Fallon explains in an even-toned, serious voice I've never heard her use. Macha and I will administer the antidote three different ways to each patient. Between each round, we have to monitor and wait. It won't be an instantaneous reversal, although we may observe some changes very quickly. But a full revival is not likely for several hours. And it could take even longer or not happen at all. I want you all to be prepared. 
She looks specifically at Fanny now. Polly's injuries make him a special case, Fanny, she says. We have to take a slightly different tact for him. I don't know how that might change things, but I'm hopeful and we'll do our absolute best to make things go smoothly. Fanny looks at the floor, takes a deep breath, then looks back into Fallon's eyes and nods. Fallon looks over at Matcha and confirms, we're ready. A technician hands Matcha a large-gauge hypodermic needle. She removes the cap, expresses the air bubbles, and steps toward Polly, aiming it toward his upper chest just below his collarbone and to the right. Once Polly has had his injection, she moves quickly to Carloa and the mystery man. They get their injections into large veins in their arms. This must be why Fallon noted Polly would be a special case. Within five minutes, all three patients' drones start to ping, reporting changes in blood pressure, temperature, heart rate, and respiration. Although small and incremental, they're all trending in the right direction. So far, so good. In all three patients, the blue color is beginning to fade. Fallon continues to keep close watch on them. They will tell us when they are ready for the next dose, she says. It could be different for each person. The technician monitoring Carloa is the first to call for Fallon. She looks closely at Carloa's lips, running a finger between them, and gently moves Carloa's jaw from side to side. Good, she pronounces. Just a few more minutes. It's not long before Polly's technician signals her. This time, Fallon is more animated. Matcha, she says after feeling Polly's jaw. He's ready. Matcha quickly steps up to Polly's bedside, syringe in her hand. She's accompanied by another tech who holds a freshly opened bottle of antidote. As Matcha fills the syringe, Fallon gently manipulates Polly's jaw until suddenly his mouth flops open and he takes a loud, rasping breath. Everyone in the room gasps. We all watch intently as Matcha depresses the syringe and squirts the liquid into Polly's mouth, aiming it toward the back of his throat. Fallon reaches over and begins to massage Polly's neck gently. We see his Adam's apple slide slowly as he swallows once, then twice. boy, Polly, Fallon says softly. A technician hands her a smaller syringe, and she places a dozen drops of fluid into each of Polly's nostrils. He sniffs and makes a small humming sound. I'm on the verge of tears. Matcha and Fallon now move to Carloa and follow the same process. With each passing minute, her vitals become stronger and closer to normal. Right on track, Fallon says to Graham, and the two exchange small smiles. The technician monitoring our mystery man at last calls for Fallon. She checks him quickly and then waves Matcha over for his second dose. He's still much bluer than the other two patients who are becoming more normal-colored with each passing minute. Matcha examines his vital signs, and Fallon is satisfied. And when he offers up a small burp in response to the antidote trickling down his throat, Fallon pats him on the shoulder and says, Good man. There's a longer interval before the final dose is given. Vital signs continue to improve, skin colors return to normal. Carloa reaches the desired baseline first and is rewarded with several cups of antidote, this version slightly pinker than the one Fallon gave the mouse during her demonstration for us. The liquid is poured into her mouth from an acrylic cup. She swallows smoothly until the cup is empty, and within moments her breathing returns to normal for a healthy person at deep breast. The last of the blue color drains from the base of her nails, and the status monitor on the drone hovering over her shifts to the desired normal parameters green. Graham lets out a long, shaky breath. I can almost see the guilt and anguish leave his body, and I realize now that all this time he's felt personally responsible for what happened to Carloa, both for his role in developing the compound that was used against her, and also as a leader who failed to keep her safe from harm. He exchanges looks with Fallon again. This time, his expression is grateful and relieved. 
Our mystery man progresses slower than the other two patients. Are you concerned about him? I ask Fallon, but she shakes her head. It's going to be different for each of them, and it's far too early to be worried yet, she says. We have a long way to go. I look down at his pleasant face, still slightly blue-tinged, and feel sad for him for a moment. There's no one to cheer for his recovery here, no one to worry. I wish more than anything I knew his name. Finally, Fallon decrees him ready for his final dose. Once given, his vitals steadily improve. As he draws his first real breath on our planet, I lean over him and whisper, I'm Faith. Welcome to Iona. It's another 20 minutes before Polly is given his third dose. Fallon is not happy with his baseline, but it's close enough. He, too, has no problem drinking down the last drop of antidote, but his vitals do not rebound as smoothly or as completely as Carloa's. His heart rate and respiration improve, but his status monitor stays yellow. Fanny looks disappointed, and Fallon encourages her. Fallon explains to us that the patients will now need several hours to stabilize before Matcha will give them a final awakening mix, which should bring them all back to full awareness. The technicians move the still unconscious patients back into what has become clinical's default blue ward and connects them to a host of drones and monitors. Carloa's recovery remains particularly impressive, while Polly and the mystery man lag behind. Despite her protestations, concern is etched on Fallon's face, and she parks herself in a corner with a hollow, obsessively reviewing her data and occasionally barking out questions to the technicians. Fanny, Graham, and I sit together in the opposite corner of the long room, behind the humming drones that continue to actively track the patients. Matcha lets Arden join us. We're all exhausted and hungry to the point that we gratefully accept the auto trays from Clinical's evening meal service that Matcha sends our way. Two hours later, Polly crashes. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying Nothing Larger Than These Stars. Check back next week for a new episode. Follow and subscribe so you don't miss a thing.